This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ Best Practice podcast on COVID-19. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. In this week's podcast, we're going to focus on important and recent issues related to the outbreak, that is testing, and also COVID and mental health and COVID and other conditions. To tell us how the guidelines can help with these issues, we have on the line Dr. Matt Castleton, Section Editor and GP, and Dr. Abigail Davis, Section Editor, who both work on BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. So to start with Matt and testing in the first instance. Matt, have there been any recent changes in guidance relating to antibody testing for COVID-19 that clinicians should know about? Yes, as the pandemic has progressed, it's become apparent that there are circumstances where a positive antibody test as a marker of previous infection might be clinically useful even after the limitations of the tests, such as getting the right timing and the sensitivity of the test, even after they're taken into account. They've been summarised in the recent practice pointer article in the BMJ, and that's been carried across into the best practice COVID-19 topic. And they align with updated World Health Organization and also in the US CDC guidance that's been published in the last few weeks. Okay, thank you. So, so tell us about the circumstances, the exact circumstances when it might be appropriate to do this. Firstly, if you have a situation with an individual with current symptoms suggestive of COVID-19, when PCR testing has failed to detect the virus, particularly for those with symptoms longer than two weeks, which is when antibody testing becomes more reliable and the situation of long COVID, for example, is when this might occur. The second situation is for individuals who are currently asymptomatic to assess if they have had a previous infection with the virus. So this might include people at high risk of severe disease or those with occupational risk of infection and getting an antibody test can provide these people with reassurance that they've been previously infected and to inform decisions about returning to work. The third situation is for monitoring the quality and longevity of the immune response in patients with previous confirmed COVID-19 disease. Uh, And this might be useful, for example, when vaccination comes along as well to assess immune response to vaccination. Finally, there's the the pre-existing reason for for antibody testing, which is seroprevalence surveys to assess the prevalence of COVID-19 in the population for public health monitoring. Okay, but but it still doesn't mean that antibody testing has a role in acute management or or, or does it? No, uh, I mean, that's a key point that comes across in the article and certainly the WHO guidance. So the antibodies only sort of come in after a couple of weeks. So if you're uh, in the acute phase of infection, there's very limited role for them in that situation and they shouldn't be used for contact tracing. And really that's going back to the PCR tests uh, in that acute situation. Okay, thanks, Matt. That's great. Let's move on to Abby and 
other conditions. Abby, there's more being published about the impact of the COVID pandemic on the diagnosis and management of other conditions. Can you tell us what's new in this area? Yes, further studies have been published examining the impact of COVID on people's mental health. So one study from the US reported a threefold increase in symptoms of depression amongst adults in the general population during the pandemic compared with before the pandemic. And we've also seen an increase in substance use. So positive urine drug tests for cocaine, fentanyl, heroin and methamphetamine in patients with or at risk of substance use disorders increased significantly during the COVID pandemic compared with the preceding four months. And one urban emergency department in the US has reported a large increase in visits for non-fatal unintentional opioid overdoses between March and June 2020 compared with the same period in 2019. Okay, thank you, Abby. And what about the mental health of people who've been diagnosed with COVID? Can you tell us about that? Good question. This is an emerging area of research still. Most studies published to date focus on the mental health of non-infected individuals um, or of healthcare professionals. But as we mentioned last week, there are some psychological manifestations of long COVID, and those include low mood, anxiety, hopelessness and sleeping difficulties. Physical symptoms of long COVID can also distort responses to tools such as the patient health questionnaire 9, the PHQ-9, which is designed to measure depression symptoms in a healthy population. So currently the recommended management for patients with long COVID and psychological symptoms is to avoid inappropriate medicalization, um, although referral to mental health services will be appropriate for some people. And patient organisations emphasise well-being and mindfulness, social connection, self-care, peer support and the importance of physical symptom control. Okay, thank you. And just flipping back to Matt for a second. Um, Matt, anything to add to that on mood and long COVID, particularly in the primary care um, uh, domain? Not very much agree with what Abby said and Trish uh, uh, Greenhall's BMJ paper on non-COVID in primary care sort of aligns with that and um, it also makes the point that GPs can provide uh, continuity of care for, for, for such patients and may need to adjust appointment times for example if, if people are suffering the mental health problems of, 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 of long COVID so um, yeah very much in line with what Abby said. Okay, thank you. And uh, Abby, this seems like an unusual question, but has the pandemic had a favourable impact on any conditions? Um, actually, yes, it has. So perhaps unsurprisingly, the incidence of some other infectious diseases has decreased. So we know that in the US, the incidence of croup, bronchiolitis and influenza in children decreased significantly after the introduction of social distancing measures and actually flu activity overall in the US is historically low. Okay, thank you. And are there any resources available to help patients access appropriate timely care during the pandemic, Abby? Yes, in the UK, the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health has just produced some guidance for parents and carers to help them know when and where to access help when their child is unwell or is injured. Um, 
The link will be in the show notes and it's available as a one page summary and it's color coded red, amber and green. So it's quite easy to use. And, and Abby, tell us about the recommendations for influenza vaccination this year. In the US, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommend influenza vaccination for everybody aged six months and over. Um, And that's because the annual flu season is expected to coincide with continuing circulation of coronavirus. Um, So it's hoped that that will reduce the prevalence of influenza, symptoms that can be confused with COVID and, and the overall burden on the healthcare system. Um, In the UK, there's also updated guidance about immunisation for the 2020 to 2021 flu season, and it emphasises the importance of trying to achieve maximum uptake of the flu vaccine in existing eligible groups. Um, The programme's also been expanded this year to include household contacts of shielding patients, children in year seven at school, and health and social care workers who deliver domiciliary care. And depending on availability following immunisation of currently eligible groups, um, there are plans to extend the programme and offer the influenza vaccine to all 50 to 64 year olds in the UK. Okay, thank you very much, Abby and Matt. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.